2017. Uh, you're here whether you like it or not. <laughs> Time passes on, doesn't it? <clears throat> Man, maybe you're glad, kind of looking back at 2016 and breathing a sigh of relief and saying, I'm glad that one's behind me. Um, I don't know for... Uh, you know, I, I see our God as a God who allows new beginnings in our lives and first and second and third chances. And I don't know if you see the new year as a time to start over, a time of new beginning or not. I think many people do. And as a result, we have a tendency then at this time of the year to make resolutions or to set goals for the year. Do any of you do that kind of thing? Good. All right. You know, there's some things that I would like to do this year to accomplish. One of the things I want to do is um, up my level of scripture memorization. I think I just maybe this past year memorized, and, and because I challenged my Sunday school class to do it, I memorized a passage of scripture too. I figured if I'm going to ask them to do it, I should do it as well. But I really didn't do a, a great job beyond that. I've been working on this chapter that um, Dean read from this morning, Romans chapter 12. Now, I do pretty good on the first half up through verse, what is that, 8? But boy, it's got so many of these little chunky things, you know, from, chapter, uh, from verse 9 through the end of the chapter. Short phrases, and I can, I still get, so I'm working on that one. Um, and, you know, I, I know that very often at, at this time of the year, we kind of will set these goals. And, and uh, you know, maybe this is, you're saying this is a year I want to make a million dollars. And that's okay with me as long as you tithe on it, okay? <clears throat> There's an old story about a happy little boy who went out into the field wearing a baseball cap. In one hand, he carried a baseball, and the other his trusty bat. His face bore a look of tremendous confidence. Cocking his bat, he tossed the ball into the air, saying, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Then he swung and missed. Strike one, he said. He picked up the ball, examined it, then threw it up in the air again. As he swung, he repeated, I'm the greatest hitter in the whole world. Once again, he missed. Strike two, he said. This time, he stopped to examine his bat. You know, that's what we do. Do you remember playing ball and, you know, you'd have one go right through your legs and I always looked at your ball glove like that was the problem. I'll tell you a story about that sometime. Um, so this time he stopped to examine his bat to make sure that there wasn't a hole in it. Then he picked up the ball, adjusted his cap, tossed the ball into the air for the third time. He repeated, I'm the greatest batter in the whole world and swung with all his might and missed for the third straight time. Now, most boys would be discouraged by that, but not this boy. He said, wow, I'm the greatest pitcher in the whole world. <laughs> That's a pretty positive attitude, huh? I'm no good at the plate, but boy. Well, today is the first Sunday of 2017. I was trying to remember, you know, I preached... Uh, I can't remember what, do you, any of you remember the last time when the first was on a Sunday? The, I don't remember the date. I know I've preached uh, on New Year's Day before. I can't remember how long ago it was. Anyway, it is the first Sunday of 2017. As we look back over the last 12 months, I'm not sure whether, whether most of us see ourselves uh, as pitchers or batters. I guess that's up to you to decide. 
But one thing is for sure, we've all struck out from time to time, haven't we? So I think it's good to be able to get a fresh start. And I want to talk to you this morning about resolutions or goals that uh, I think are important uh, to make in every believer's life. Uh, for some of you, as I share these things this morning, and by the way, I'll just warn you right now, um, what are there, six points on your thing? Six points. I'm going to get through three today. Okay? And then I'm going to add one more next Sunday. So who knows? This could take us through the whole year. I don't know. Um, But as I share these things with you this morning, for some of you, as we consider these things, it will just simply be a matter maybe of raising the bar a little bit in your lives. For others... Maybe you'll need to set some new goals or make some goals in the areas that I talk about. But the bottom line is this. As these things become more consistent in your life and mine, because they say when you're pointing out there, you've got at least three fingers pointing back at yourself. As these things become more consistent in your life and mine, they benefit the church because you are the church. Your personal commitments can make us a more effective church. So, number one, this year, determine to be a person of prayer, both private and corporate. I preached a a series on prayer, I don't remember when when I was still doing the interim thing or after I came on full time. But I shared with you a little saying that um, a pastor from a, a church in a small town in western Oregon, it's south of Salem, He's got this, I think, about 800-person church in this little bitty town because people come all over to, to attend. It's called Jefferson Baptist. And that church grew through prayer. And this pa- pastor is deeply committed to prayer. Here's what he said. No prayer, no blessing. Little prayer, little blessing. Much prayer, much blessing. It is the work, the duty, the responsibility, and the privilege of every Christian. And it's not easy, and it's not always exciting or convenient, and it's often ignored. It just doesn't have the place in our lives, and consequently often the place in the church that it should have. And there's a reason for that. Um, Satan fights us on this one. Because he knows the power of prayer, the impact that it can have on the kingdom of darkness. So he just wants to make sure we don't do that. Um, I remember we used to listen uh, when our girls were growing up to Carmen. You remember Carmen? I don't remember his name was about this. last name was about that long. So maybe that's why he just called himself Carmen. But I remember him uh, uh, singing one of his songs about prayer and You know, in this song, he's talking about how the forces of darkness are reacting because people are praying, you know. He talks about him jumping out of windows and things like that. And um, it's true. Uh, Our prayers have an impact, a powerful impact. The scripture tells us that. And Satan doesn't like it when we pray because it has an impact on him and what he's trying to accomplish in our world. And so he fights us on this one. And of course, as Americans, one of the huge things he uses is the busyness of our lives. I just don't have time. 
But folks, it doesn't matter. We've got as, as followers of Jesus Christ, and if we have a concern for our world at all and our church and lost people, and if we want to see God work among us, we've got to be praying people. Of course, only God knows what 2017 holds in store for us. But I have high hopes for things here at the Longmont Nazarene Church. And I hope you do too. And this I know. If good things are going to happen, if God is going to work among us, prayer has to happen first. Now, certainly it is important for all of us to have a private prayer life. You know, the scripture talks about going into your prayer closet. We need to do that in obedience to scripture. It's vital to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. I mean, how can you have a relationship with someone you don't talk to? Right? You know, sometimes, uh, have you ever, you've probably all wrestled with this. We're, we're, we're at a place of decision in our lives and we want to know God's will and it's like, is that God talking to me or not? And you know, um, I remember, remember when Jesus came to John the Baptist at the Jordan River? And right away John knew that's him. Because the Holy Spirit told him, and when the Holy Spirit spoke to John, he recognized God's voice right away. He didn't have to say, oh, is that God or not? And I think sometimes we struggle with that. We're not in communication with God enough to recognize His voice when He calls us on the phone. Listen, when Julie calls me at the office and I hear her voice, it is not good if I say, who is this? (laughs) Right, guys? And I, I, I don't think it's good when God talks to us and we're kind of saying, is this you or not? Now I know... On the other side of that coin, if you will, there's a, an enemy who tries in every way to deceive us. That's one of his big weapons that he uses in our lives. And it says he can come as an angel of light. And it can get kind of confusing. But I think the better we know God's voice, the less often we'll have to say, who is this on the other end of the line, right? But, in the, if in the life of the church, in the life of the church, corporate prayer is important, I'd say even vital as well. Look at the instances in Scripture where people gathered together to pray and then they saw powerful things that God did in response. And you may be able to, when I say that, you may, be, you may have these things come to your mind as you've read through Scripture and say, yeah, I remember that incident in, in the scripture where people gathered together to pray and God delivered or provided or whatever he did in a particular instance. If you read through the book of Acts, you kind of see that thing happening all the time. People gathering in prayer around something, around an issue, around a need, uh, around, around a desire to see God move and these incredible things happen. In Acts chapter 4 verse 31, it says, After they prayed, the place they were, where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now what happened there? Well, the disciples were preaching in the, in the temple area, and the leaders of the people said, If you're going to talk about Jesus, don't. And if you do, you're going to be in trouble. And they went back to the other believers, and they got together in prayer, and said, Here's the issue, and... 
this is what we need to pray about. And God's response was the Holy Spirit moved and they spoke the word of God boldly. Nobody shut up about Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, Peter's been put in prison. And what happens? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And you know what happened? Do you remember the story? Peter gets out of jail miraculously, shows up at the place where they're praying. The girl at the door runs in and says, Peter's here. And they say, can't happen. We're praying for him to get out of jail right now. (laughs) Remember that? Don't you think that's kind of a funny story in there? I just finished reading a book by Thomas Rayner entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. Rayner studied 14 churches that went out of business. They no longer existed. And he came up with 12 factors that were common causes of the death that these churches experienced. One of the symptoms, one of the 12 symptoms, typical of churches now dead, now no longer meeting together, now no longer in existence, was that they rarely prayed together. And somehow that conclusion doesn't surprise me. Let me share with you some quotes um, about prayer. This one's by R.A. Torrey. He said, When the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. Wouldn't you like to see that happen? Charles Finney. Nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. You want unity in your church? Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. And then D.A.T. Pearson. I'd never heard of this guy before. I looked him up. He was a, a, a Presbyterian writer and pastor and in back in the late 1800s. And he said this, There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. People coming together corporately and agreeing, uniting in prayer for God to move. In in in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a, a, a story of, it's Jesus, remember, going into the temple and he's, They say cleansing it. He's chasing out the people who are buying and selling in there. And what was happening is, Jesus was upset because um, they were ripping people off is what was happening. They were charging exorbitant prices for these things that people had to have in their temple worship. And they knew that people had to have them. And they knew that people often traveled a long way to come to the temple to to be obedient to, you know, all the structure that was laid out for the Jewish people in their worship. So they couldn't bring this stuff with them, so they'd buy it in the temple. And it's kind of like, where else are you going to go now? So we, get, we, can, we can charge anything we want. And Jesus took exception to that. And he drove those people out of the temple area. And, and, 
And if you read those passages in those Gospels, you'll find that Jesus said this, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting from, from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. So it wasn't a new concept that Jesus was sharing with people at this point in time. Hundreds of years before, Isaiah had gotten this message from God. I want my house to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And I don't know how many churches can really say their house is a prayer. I mean, we do a lot of things that are really good in churches. And, and, and you think about even on Sunday morning what we do. And if you were able to kind of say, okay, we give uh, this... Per, if you, you split our the time that we spend together on Sunday morning, just in the sanctuary, I'm not talking about previously in Sunday school, and you said, okay, this percentage of time we spend in announcements and greeting, this percentage of time we spend in singing, this percentage of time we spend in prayer, this percentage of time we spend um, in the sermon. I don't know how great that percentage that we spend in prayer would look compared to some of those other things. You know, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and we're talking about the early church and we know things were exploding. This, is, this, is, this tells us what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's your preaching. And the fellowship, they got together. And to the breaking of bread, they shared in communion or, or in, in meals together. And I think there's something powerful about that. You know, the mask comes off when you're stuffing your face, right? Okay? We tend to be a little more real with each other. And, so let me start. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those were the things they committed themselves to. Don't you think that there was probably a considerable amount of time that they spent in prayer together? I do. Well, yeah, of course you think that. You're the pastor and pastors. <laughs> but I really do think that. And so I think it's a challenge to us as a church. Not only, hey, keep praying in your prayer closet. We need you to be doing that. But we also need to be coming together, folks, and agreeing in prayer that we need to God to do something powerful in our midst. Because we've talked about it before. We're a church that won't exist a long ways into the future if we don't see some changes. Amen? I'm not trying to be negative. I don't feel like I'm a negative person. But listen, if we, we talked about it before. If God doesn't change the demographic inside the walls of this church, we won't be here in the future. We need God to do something powerful in our midst. And so, folks, we need to be praying together, agreeing in prayer together, united in prayer together. The second thing... Um, <clears throat> that we need to resolve to do or set as a goal is to commit to increase our knowledge of Scripture. Uh, you've all heard of George Gallup, the pollster. He has long referred to America as a nation of biblical illiterates. And I would have to agree with that. He says only four in ten Americans know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. 
A majority of citizens cannot name the four Gospels of the New Testament. Former Secretary of Education William Bennett concluded that we have become the kind of society that civilized countries used to send missionaries to. And we know that's happening. Missionaries are now coming to the United States of America to evangelize us. Because just about any way you look at it, we're a post-Christian nation. So, just a little quiz this morning to test you. Which of the following are not in the Bible? Now, don't raise your hand. I don't want anybody to embarrass themselves. So you have to answer in your own mind. Here we go. Number one. Now, is this or is this not in the Bible? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah, okay, good. God helps those who help themselves. Confession is good for the soul. Hmm. It doesn't say that anywhere. The idea is there, right? These are some of these are kind of tricky. Here's one. We're as prone to sin as sparks fly upward. That's from Job. No. <laughs> you know what it says? It says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. That's one of those questions that your college profs used to put on those tests. Remember that? You know, there was one class I really hated because it was multiple guess, multiple answer. Oh, those are terrible. At least, you know, these aren't like that. Money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? Honesty is the best policy. It's not in there. (laughs) Probably the idea, but um, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Scripture. Actually, none of these, as quoted, are, are, are in the Scripture. A recent Barna research group survey survey conducted among a random of probability sample of 641 adults demonstrated that many Americans have a woeful knowledge of the Bible. Among Christians in the survey, 22% thought thought that there is actually a book of Thomas in the Bible. Christians, 22% of Christians thought that. And 13% said that they did not know whether Thomas is a book of the Bible or not. That's kind of disappointing, isn't it? Have you guys ever read the book of Hezekiah? Just testing you. (laughs) Um, 65% did state correctly, this is among Christians, that Thomas is not a book of the Bible, okay? So, whew, that's not too bad. We would hope for better. 61% knew that Jonah is a book of the Bible. 27% said it is not. This is still, we're talking about Christians. And 12% had no idea if Jonah was a book of the Bible. Who's Jonah? Um, Three quarters of Christians surveyed knew that the book of, uh, excuse me, knew that the book of Isaiah is located in the Old Testament. 
While 11% thought it was in the New Testament, 13% did not know where Isaiah could be found. Half of the non-Christians knew that Isaiah is located in the Old Testament. Almost as good as those of us are supposed to know all about that, huh? 61% of all Americans named Bethlehem as the city where Jesus Christ was born. Among non-Christians, 55% knew Christ was born in Bethlehem. Seven out of ten Christians answered this question correctly, while 16% named Jerusalem as Jesus' place of birth. We're back to Christians now. 16% of Christians thought Jesus was born in Jerusalem. 8% said it was Nazareth. And 6% didn't have a clue where he was born. Hmm. uh, uh, Barna says, the question that gave the most trouble was, is the expression, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible? One we just dealt with. Only 38% of all Christians correctly stated that that phrase cannot be found anywhere in the scripture. 42% thought that this was a biblical quotation. 20% had no idea. Among non-Christians surveyed, 40% said the axiom was part of the word. 26% of non-Christians knew that it was not. And 34% were honest and said, I don't know. So why is there so much ignorance about the scripture? Well, most likely it comes from a lack of biblical readership. Half of, all, uh, half of all Americans do not read the Bible. The majority of all born-again Christians read the Bible once or twice a week or not at all. That's sad. The survey found that only 18% of all Christians said that they read the Word of God every day, while another 18% read the Bible between three and six days a week, 37% read it once or twice a week, 23% said they do not read the Bible at all. 23% of Christians do not read the Bible at all. Among non-Christians, 70% do not read the Bible. Is this because people don't own Bibles? You know the answer to that, don't you? Most of, them, most of us have a few stacked in our house somewhere. Research showed that 93% of all Americans own at least one Bible, and most own more than one. Folks, we need to acquaint, at the very least, acquaint ourselves with the whole of Scripture. And there was a resounding amen when the pastor said. Listen, there are 66 books in the Bible for a reason. God speaks to us through all of His Word. And we need to know what He's saying. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is how that verse sounds in the message. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. Hmm. Well said. And I think one reason there is so much division among those who call themselves Christians 
And we've seen some of that in recent elections. So much division over moral issues such as pre- or extramarital sex, abortion, same-sex marriage, physician-assisted suicide, and the list could go on, is that people are not truly aware of what the Scripture says about these issues. There's a tendency to let others and their interpretation of Scripture make our decisions for us. Add to that the ongoing effort to place doubt on the truth and accuracy of Scripture, and you have a lot of folks that don't believe that the Bible has value in their lives. We need to be more like the Bereans. Remember the Bereans? Paul preached to the Bereans, who after hearing the preaching of the Apostle Paul, went home and studied the Scriptures to determine if what he had told them was true. Acts 17, verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And, you know, we have... uh, And I I hope you don't do it with me. If if I preach something, you're kind of saying, wait a minute, that sounds kind of funny. I hope you... I hope you ask me about it to go home and look it up and check it out. There's too many of us that get everything we know and understand about the Bible from some guy who stands up front and tells you. And in some cases that's fine because they're spot on, but there's some out there who are not. And listen... These efforts to distort, misinterpret, and deny the validity of Scripture will only become more intense in the days we live in. Second Peter 3.16, Peter's referring to Paul here. He said, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of, in them of these matters, some things that, that Peter just been speaking about. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So, folks, it's been going on for a long time. How do we guard against this? Well, one way is to increase our familiarity with or knowledge of the scripture. Have you ever read through the entire Bible? You know, uh, one of the great things that they've come out with in the last, I don't know how many years, are are the one-year Bibles. You know, it used to be that um, what you got was a reading plan, so it would tell you each day. But now they have a Bible that's broken up into sections for each day of the year. I've been reading through one of those myself this past year in the New Living Translation. And so I get a... I get a a dose of the Old Testament and a dose of the New Testament and a dose of Psalms and a dose of Proverbs every day. And I don't get to skip any portions of the Old Testament especially that I think are kind of boring. Because, hey, I can't skip a day, right? You know those begats and lists of rules and, you know, all that stuff? It's all there for a reason, folks. 
Um, by the way, some of them are even, and I, I'd like to get one of these for myself, some of them are even ordered chronologically. You know, our Bibles aren't ordered chronologically, but they do have some that are ordered chronologically so you can get a better picture of when these things were written, kind of what in what order and what, what, what period of time they happened in. You know, one of the, the Psalms that I really love is Psalm 19. Not 119. I do love that one too. But this is kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of Psalm 119. And it says this, beginning in verses Verse 7 and it's through verse 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Here we're telling you the benefit of God's Word in your life. So you're missing out on some things, according to the, the psalmist, if you're not into the Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Do you feel like that about the Scripture? I love this verse 11. By them your servant is warned. Don't go there. Don't go there. Don't do that. Listen. God made us. He knows what works. It's like your car. You know, when you buy a car, you get an owner's manual with that thing. Alright? And it says... Put gasoline in the gas tank. And you can ignore that instruction. And you can put honey or syrup or water in there. But guess what? You're going to have a big problem with that car, aren't you? This is the owner's manual. God tells us what we can put in the gas tank and can't put in the gas tank. He tells us what the parameters for appropriate operation of the vehicle are. And we wonder why people get into trouble in their lives. It's because they ignore the owner's manual. You know, we, we again, we talked a moments ago about the distortion of Scripture and misinterpretation and it's not valid anymore. And we see in our world that all the time. I mean, we've moved into areas and, and given approval to things that... I don't know if we just think we've gotten a lot smarter... Or that just doesn't apply anymore? I mean, the statutes of the limitation on that prohibition ran out in when? 1960? Do you see what I'm saying? Listen, God is timeless. He knew what we would be dealing with in 2016 and 2017. And He didn't say... There's nowhere in here that I can find that says, okay... Um, this law in your life, this commandment, only is good through 1860 after that. You know what I'm saying? But we kind of act like that sometimes. That's why, that's why the moral, thank you, structure is kind of falling apart in our country. Uh, I've gotten off on my apple box. I didn't even mean to go there really, but. 
By them your servant is warned, the scriptures warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Now here's, be careful about how you interpret that verse. That doesn't mean that your bank account is suddenly going to grow beyond your wildest dreams, or you're going to have that house you always wanted, or the six things parked in the driveway that, you know, different recreation. That's not what it's talking about. We used to tell our daughters, here's one of the great rewards that Scripture provides in your life. It protects you, if you're obedient to it, from having to deal with the consequences of sin in your life. I'd say that's a pretty big reward. Look around. Look around. Number three. I will pledge myself to total obedience. Folks, obedience is the hallmark of our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6, We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him, in God, must walk as Jesus did. Listen, folks, Jesus walked in total obedience to His Father. Even to the point of going to the cross. Paul, Paul speaks to that in, in the second chapter of Philippians. It said, Jesus became obedient even to death on a cross. Wow. John fourteen twenty three, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with, with them. Romans two thirteen. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. We lived next door to a guy one time. He gave me a, a box of commentaries. It was tough to argue scripture with him. He was really knowledgeable. You know why he gave me that box of commentaries? He didn't care about the scripture anymore. <laughs> he knew it better than I did. But he didn't want to live by it. It was a sad, sad situation. You know, I think sometimes one of the, one of the greatest struggles we have in life is making the choice to be obedient to God every time he tells us, this is what I want you to do, or this is what I don't want you to do. Even if we know that it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do because we've read it in the Scripture, even when we've seen the actual results of obedience in our lives, even when we know the ramifications of not obeying, we still sometimes struggle to obey what God is telling us to do or not to do or where to go. Or You know what? The bottom line, here's the question. How devoted to God are we really? 
Are we devoted enough? Do we trust him deeply enough to obey him in everything? We claim to be Christians. Christian, uh, idea that, the idea of the word Christian is little Christ. <laughs> We're supposed to be imitators of Jesus Christ. We're to be like Christ. And, and to become more like Christ, we have to walk the way Jesus walked in total obedience. We need to follow His example and be totally obedient to Him. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. If we are sincerely praying the Lord's Prayer, then when we pray, Thy will be done, that should indicate a willingness on our part to be obedient to what He tells us He wants us to do in our lives. There's a, there's a really critical scripture. Um, let's do a Bible sword drill. Do you remember those? The, the, okay. You know, this is, this is a sword. The Word is our sword. Okay? If you read, you're in, you're in Revelation right now. Remember the sword comes out of the mouth and that's... Okay. The sword. We used to do this in, uh, I don't know, Sunday school, Bible school. And we'd have the sword drill and the teacher would give us, you had to close your Bible and they'd give you uh, a reference and you'd look it up as fast as you could and the first person to find it would stand up and read it. Okay? You can't look in the uh, front to find out what page it's on. Uh, some of you said, well, I'm not playing then. <laughs> we had to memorize the books of the Bible too. Yeah, it really helps. It really does. Okay, here we go. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. <laughs> That's a good... Sa- hey, hey, we have a winner. 1 Samuel 15, 22? Yes. Thank you. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Obedience is at the top of God's list for us. That's what He said. To, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's better. See, see, that's in this Old Testament time, people thought if they did all of the right things, you know, the ritual stuff, they were good to go. Just bring your sacrifices to the temple and, you know, don't spit on the ground on Sunday, Saturday, because you'd be making mortar if you did that. And we can't be making mortar on Saturday. We all know that. If you did all those kind of things, you were good to go. But the problem was, they were doing a lot of things that were displeasing to God, that like they, that they, they did all the ritual stuff, but their hearts were not in it. So here they are, worshiping 
the God of heaven, Jehovah, Yahweh, on Saturday. And then on Monday, they might go worship Baal. And on Tuesday, they might go worship Molech. And they might cheat their neighbor. And, and the list went on and on. So they weren't keeping the commandments, per se, but they were doing all the ritualistic stuff. They were, they were bringing their spotless... Well, they even got in trouble for that sometimes because pretty soon it wasn't the perfect livestock from the herd. It was, let's get the one that's limping out there. Really? That's what was happening. And God said, you know what I want above all? I want you to obey me. Obey me. Listen, folks. Reading, studying the Scripture, and prayer don't mean a whole lot if you're not obeying God. Like my next door neighbor. All right. We'll do four, five, six, and seven next week, maybe. We'll see, we'll see how that builds this week as, as I study and prepare for next Sunday morning. More personal commitments for an effective church. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word today. And may we love it. I, I just think of uh, Psalm 19 and then Psalm 119 where the psalmist expresses in so many ways his love for your word. How valuable it was in his life. Lord, it, Lord God, it does a lot of good things for us and it honors you when we know it, when we memorize it, but most of all, when we're obedient to it. And Lord God, I pray that there would be a renewed or maybe a, a brand new commitment to praying together. We desperately need your direction. We need your strategy for how to be a church that is effective in reaching lost and broken people for Jesus Christ and bringing them into the fold and seeing them grow up as, as mature, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So as we make these personal commitments in our lives and see the benefit of that personally, may we also, as we get together, as we're a, a church body, see the benefit of that in our church and not only our effectiveness personally, but our effectiveness corporately. And Father, we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.